Hello, my name is Rafael Deleon, and I'm the Senior Vice President at N Contract. Today, I have the honor of talking with Dorothy Savaris. Dorothy is Chair and CEO of Cape Cod Five, a mutually owned, independent, state-chartered community bank serving Cape Cod, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and southeastern Massachusetts. The bank was founded in 1855, 167 years ago, and continues to serve its mission. Dorothy's been with the bank 25, I think at least years, where the bank has really tripled in size and become a nationally recognized leader. Among the many honors bestowed on the bank and on Dorothy, particularly on Dorothy, Dorothy has been for the previous 10 years, one of the American bankers, 25 most powerful women in banking. She was recently appointed by the governor of Massachusetts to the Commission on Clean Heat, the nation's first of its kind. Dorothy has also been called upon to speak all over the world about the key role that community banking plays within a community, as well as the leadership that banks can provide in the areas of environmental stewardship, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm so excited to explore many topics with Dorothy today. So Dorothy, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks so much, Raphael. It's so good to be with you. So is there anything I've left out of your bio that you would like to highlight? Well, you know, we cut it off at 25 years because we don't want to give away my age. I've actually been here for 29 and, and uh, CEO for 17. So, um, yeah, that kind of gives it away. Well, good. Well, again, thank you. Um, so I've gotten to know you over the years and I've uh, gotten to know about you. And I've really come to know a lot about mutual institutions through my work with the OCC and the, really the value they provide in the community. And that's why I wanted to highlight that within my introduction. But within that, I noticed in your annual report and in part of your strategic plan, you talk about Cape Cod Five as a purpose-driven bank. What do you mean by that? And thank you for picking that up. Embedded in our DNA is serving our mission, which is enriching lives. And so it's serving our, our customers, our communities, and our employees. And we do that achieving our goals as an institution, but focusing on what the specific needs of the communities we serve are. Oh, that's great. So when I'm reading through this about a, a purpose-driven bank, one of the things I notice is, especially in your annual report, you focused on engaging your employees. And, and I know we've, we've talked about this and worked for an institution that had been talked about that employees are your key asset. And yet that is the one thing that really stood out for me. You focused right on your employees first. Tell me about that. Thank you. Without our employees, where would we be, right? And so we actually have in the, the four top goals of our organization, we have to maintain our financial strength and we have to serve our customers and we want to serve our communities. But employees are right up there as one of our top goals because their engagement is what makes this possible. Their caring and their dedication. We are so proud to have been recognized for our employees' engagement. So as you probably know, we've been recognized as an American banker, top bank to work for. We've been recognized by the Boston Globe Magazine 
as a top place to work for several years. And we work very intentionally on that. We survey our employees all the time. We use the the surveys that come with the American Banker and with a Boston Globe, but we develop our own to really get a sense of where we can draw our employees into our mission and how we can support them in their lives as they are doing that. What you just provided is really a textbook example of everything I'm reading on the great resignation and engaging millennials and and where they're choosing to work. And it is choices of where they're going, but your institution really stands out like an example that I've read in many of these institutions that it is purpose-driven around these things, but really, and again, part of the focus of today is around ESG issues, environmental, social, and governance. So let's talk about the environmental You've built a a new headquarter facility, and I want to commend you on that. So one of the reasons I want to focus on ESG and this environmental is I think there's a lot of noise that's out there, Mm -hmm. and that there's a lot of bankers that I encounter, like, I need help with this. What do we do? And I'm like, start talking about what you're doing. So I think, again, you've got just great examples about what you're doing. So tell me about how this has started and why ESG and the environment has become a passion for you. Let's start at the beginning. Well, and again, this does, as you keep pointing to all, all derived from the fact that we are purpose driven. So, and you, and you also began with mutuality, which I loved because we think of mutuality again, as not just a form of organization, but something that really speaks to us uh, in terms of what our mission is and enables us to take the long view. But environmental stewardship has long been embedded into our primary areas of focus for our organization. So we, when we are serving the community, we focus on housing and environmental stewardship along with economic sustainability and advancement of financial know-how and kind of that social safety net. But environmental stewardship has been right there all along. So we look for how we can actually accomplish that through a variety of ways. And frankly, Raphael, we bring the same management rigor to this community engagement and these goals as we do to everything else. So we say we accomplish it through, we're we're very fond of the number five through our five ways. So it's community banking. And so we've developed solar loans and purchased investments in tax credits, things like that uh, through our responsible business practices. And in our responsible business practices, what we were going to do with our new headquarters was a critical part of that. I'll come back to that in a second. But you know, corporate leadership and volunteerism, again, advancement of financial know-how and philanthropy. So it's not just writing checks. It's how we do what we do. It's it's how we roll. So in terms of the headquarters, we actually looked for years to look for a site on Cape Cod that was previously disturbed. It actually already had buildings on it. And why was that? Because the conservation of green space on Cape Cod is very important. We also wanted it to be close to where we could connect to the sewer because, again, wastewater is a major issue on Cape Cod. And we spent a significant amount of time 
designing a building that's targeting Leeds Gold. And, and of course, the, the process just takes a long time. The building is done, but we're, we're waiting on that certification. And it involved everything from the materials that were in the building to the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system to the solar panels up on the roof. And we're going to also be putting a solar canopy over our structured parking garage. And so every piece of what we did in this building was designed, even the orientation of the building was designed for two things, to maximize the natural sunlight from a solar perspective, but also from an employee perspective. So one of the things is all of it is open so that the employees can always have natural light coming in. So again, our headquarters evidence that commitment to environmental stewardship as we move along and the world changes, the threats to our environment continue to increase. And so we have to continue to adapt the way that we are focused on environmental stewardship. So, and a little segue here is, I think, again, you're focused on what you were able to do previously with your building as you were looking for a new headquarters. But for those banks that already have their headquarters established, what are some of the practical things that you would suggest that they do in terms of maximizing you know, energy efficiency? Oh, such a great question, because if you think about it, and of course, being on the Clean Heat Commission, I'm very, some might say, obsessively focused on this right now. Most of the buildings that will be here in 2030 and 2050 are already built. So your your point is so excellent. In most cases, banks aren't running out and building new headquarters. And frankly, given the availability of remote work, it's putting into question just how large headquarters should be. So one of the most important ways that you can shrink your carbon footprint is actually weatherization. So, you know, a lot of folks, I mean, you know, you heard we've been kicking around for 167 years. So, you know, a lot of our buildings are pre-existing. We're working on making sure that we have efficient HVAC systems the insulation is there, the, the lighting is energy efficient. There is a, so much that can be done with the existing building envelopes to really shrink the emissions of carbon. Of course, the installation of solar panels on top of buildings on in solar canopies over parking areas is a huge way of offsetting costs, first of all, you know, for electricity, but also providing a renewable source of energy. So thank you for those great examples. Um, as I'm working with a number of community institutions around ESG and especially the environmental aspects, again, one of my recommendations is just start talking about what you're doing and then the rest will come from that. I know that here at the ABA Washington Summit, Michael Sue, the acting controller of the currency, just spoke and was addressing these issues and said, yes, specifically, the focus is going to be on the larger institutions. And after those things get done, they will start moving into the community banks. But he also did urge people to use this kind of runway or timeline to maximize it. And I think that's where examples like this are really helpful about talking about what you're doing. Have you seen any other ways that you would recommend for bankers? Yes. And to your point, find incremental ways, right? So one of the things that we did was introduce to get our employees on board, 
we've introduced an incentive for the purchase of electric vehicles. And here at HQ5, as we call it, we have electric car chargers that they can charge for free. My car is outside plugged into the charger right now. And I get a notification that it's filled up and I, I actually need to move it so that someone else can charge. But that way you can get your employees excited about it. The other thing that we have piloted, as I mentioned, is solar loans and then taken advantage of a state program called heat loans, which encourages a lot of energy conservation. So the very same tools that you're offering your customers You can also really publicize them to your own employees in terms of taking advantage of the financial incentives. And there are many out there. I think those are great examples looking at uh, as well as those incentives in respective states. So you talk about incremental changes. So how did you develop the strategy and how hard did you have to sell this to your board of directors? That's a question every banker is going to face, right? For years, our focus on environmental stewardship, I have to say, was buying dirt. So in other words, we would contribute money to conservation organizations to set aside land for conservation. And so when I took over our charitable activities years ago before I was CEO, I'm like, maybe it's more than that. And so we began expanding those activities. And we on the Cape and Islands in Southeastern Mass are, of course, particularly sensitized to the climate issues because of the fact that we're seeing warming waters, both freshwater as well as the ocean, and the migration of what we call our ground stocks. So in the Midwest, my colleagues have four-footed stocks. We have ground stocks that swim in the water, and those have been migrating northward with ocean acidification and uh, warming waters, and our, our, our storm severity has increased. There's been an, a, a rise in sea level, greater erosion. All of those things have really intensified our focus on developing a plan of action that's addressing all of that. So you break it down into pieces, right? So one of the things that we do is support those efforts that mitigate wastewater's imp- impact on local, uh, we have one sole source aquifer here. And then again, as I just described to you, the implications of climate change, we work on providing education, funding, lending. As I mentioned, one of the things that we do is we try to also integrate it with some of our existing focuses. For example, we invested in solar tax credits that are the off-takers are a housing authority. So we've kind of accomplished two things. So how did we get the board involved? Well, the wonderful thing is, you know, it's cause and effect. You can show our board is deeply focused on the fact that we only succeed if our communities that we serve succeed. And we only succeed if our employees succeed. And so as we show the through line from our activities in terms of our five ways to how they can actually support the environmental or other ESG issues in our community, then they provide a lot of oversight and support for that. And when I mentioned that we use the same management rigor for this, we actually have a community engagement steering committee that meets, that's made up of senior management officers, 
that meets every single week and reviews our plan as we expand it, as well as incoming applications for support. We have a community engagement board committee, and we, in our strategic plan, we have goals and outcomes relative to our ESG objectives. And so we hold ourselves accountable and our community engagement board committee and the board itself oversee the bank's accomplishment of these agreed upon outcomes. Well, thank you on that. Again, very good examples of starting with something. And then once you have the idea, it's easy to develop the measures or easier, I would say, to develop the measures. Oh, if we're going to save so much paper and this paper is going to be shredded, what does what is this going into and how are we measuring it? And that's where I kind of talk about my examples. Just start talking about it. The rest will flow. That paperless is a wonderful example because for the past three years before moving into this building, we had a whole paperless initiative and it was twofold. One is when we moved into the new building, we wanted to be paperless. We wanted to be able to move around, you know, with the laptop that's in front of me and it's all wireless and, you know, no filing cabinets, no anything. And that actually helped us with the digital pivot, but it also was the environmental impact on that. And again, in this building, for example, with without all of that paper, we do divide into, you know, recycling, mulching, things like that. But our waste is much reduced as a result of that. Raphael, that was a wonderful example that I overlooked, which is paperless is a very great initiative because it's a twofold bang for your buck. It well, helps the environment and it helps efficiency. Uh, so to that point, I will have to give a lot of credit to the former comptroller, Joseph Odding, because he initiated that at the OCC, which in turn, and I heard you allude to it, really enabled us to be so much better prepared to pivot when COVID hit. So let's talk a little bit about that. You just alluded to that because what happened with COVID is really very similar to the effects you face from climate risk because of your location at Cape Cod and, and what the, the elements that you're up against and how severe they're becoming. So talk a little bit about that. And that's an interesting combination of topics there. So relative to, again, you know, the paperless piece, we were able to basically say, you know, we cut the ribbon on this building in January of 2020, I'm going to say, yeah. And in March, we said, okay, all back office people are now going to work remotely. And they were able to just pack up their laptops and we gave them peripheral screens so you could go into the big room downstairs and pick one up and off they went and seamlessly without missing a, a beat were able to do that. And then to your very good point, of course, Cape Cod has experienced two tornadoes in the last several years, actually three now. We, of course, are um, in terms of resilience, we are very vulnerable. And so we've had a number of extraordinarily unusual and severe storms over the last few years. And during the last two, you know, what was kind of crazy is, well, we don't have to worry about the back office delayed coming in because they can all work from home. The interesting thing was in terms of resilience, because of course, here at the building, we've got generators and battery backup and things like that. 
when they could make it onto the road because of a lot of our employees didn't have power or internet at home, they did come into the building. So it's sort of redundancy in both ways. So your point is very well taken. Our movement in environmental stewardship, in paperless, in moving to this digital, no sort of cords attached way of working resulted in a lot more institutional resilience for us with COVID. And it also, because of the severity of our storms, gives us more resilience in that matter as well. That's a great point, Raphael. So, no, well, thank you. When I hear resilience, the first thing I think of is business continuity planning. And so that's what struck me. And I hadn't really made those parallels before. In fact, I almost was wondering if you had to have a hard sell with your board because of, I, I think, again, if they're living there and part of the community, they see it very clearly. Right. So um, with this, did you have some sort of change management process to help with your employees? Really, how did this, you know, once you started talking about it, was there quick and readily adoption, again, because of where you are in the community and what you're doing? What were the forces that led to having this embedded as a part of your DNA at Cape Cod 5? I would argue that it's been an evolution, right? So they all got the conservation piece. And then as we broaden that to include other parts of environmental stewardship, one of the things that we do is probably over-communicate with our employees. In fact, as soon as I'm done here, I'll be hopping on our weekly live town hall where we take any questions, any questions anonymously from any employee. And so by giving them visibility into what our efforts are, by constant communication with employees and with the organization writ large about educating them about the impacts on the environment that we were trying to mitigate through a variety of means, and then highlighting the activity of organizations that are working on them, volunteers, employee volunteers, or others, we're able to constantly keep in front of our employees and our board the why. Why are we doing this? And so when we think of change management, the way that we approach it is bringing everybody along together, not tying it up with a bow and presenting it as a fait accompli. So every year, as I mentioned about our surveying, when we work on our strategic plan in the summer every year, we actually do a, a very robust survey for our employees on our what do they think we should be focused on, what should be continued, what should be discontinued. The other thing that we do, and since you're familiar with the mutual organization, you'll understand we have stakeholders, not stockholders, called corporators. We do regional meetings in each of our regions. And of course, for us as a small bank, uh, we have six regions for some of the national banks, they would consider Massachusetts a region, but so upper, middle, lower Cape, the two islands, southeastern Mass, all different ones. And we ask them about what's going on the ground, what's happening, and getting and sharing with them what our efforts are so that they can give feedback to us. And then we we do the same very involved engagement with our board. So our approach, as I mentioned, with change management is bring everyone along at every stage, get input from them, share with them what's going on, give them a line of sight to our goals, tell them how we're doing on our goals, ask them how we should change direction or modify or double down. 
I would imagine because of this part of your DNA, so part of your culture, and I, I get culture, I see it, the minute you see it, you, you recognize it, and this mm-hmm. is part of yours, and I, I understand that. So my next question really flows into that. I would imagine it's much easier to get information from your employees about what businesses you're doing partnerships with or loans with or business, your customers, and what they're doing within the community. They may not come up in a normal loan discussion or account opening, but people who are involved in the community, oh, I know that they're a customer and they just put in solar. Are you getting a lot of that feedback about how? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. No, that's such a wonderful thing. You know, we're we're so fortunate to have such intimacy with the communities. And one of the things that we do, for example, in those quarterly regional meetings, we meet with our corporators and our relationship team members. So what we're trying to do is create boots on the ground dialogue in each of those regions that's hyper local in nature. So as we're discussing these topics, even the corporators can say, hey, uh, you know, Matt, did you know about, you know, so-and-so is doing what you all are talking about? And and the other thing that we've done, we've been the, uh, one of the major corporate sponsors of just, for example, the Net Zero Conference that the Cape Cod Climate Change Collaborative has every year. And as you know, I'm on the executive committee of the uh, Climate Collaborative. And each year we have a major conference where we feature examples, use cases, things like that. Last year, we particularly, or year before last, we particularly focused on businesses. And in several years in a running, Cape Cod 5 is presented. And what we've done is exactly what you were saying before. We've presented actionable steps that are scalable that any business can take, just a whole menu of them so that you don't have to be Cape Cod 5, which in our area, we're actually a large a large company. You can be a much smaller company and still take these steps. And what those conferences have done is allowed businesses to talk to each other and us to hear from them some examples. It's been a great collaborative undertaking. Well, I think it is a very good collab and excellent example of, of collaborative undertaking. Mm-hmm. So as we're coming towards the end, there, there's um, one question I want to ask you before we close and go into that question is we're talking about climate risk and how they've impacted you. What have you learned from each climate event that you've had happened? Have you learned something from each one that you were not aware of? Uh, in each situation? And how did you adjust? Because it really gets back to that idea of resiliency. And, and what do we learn? Because this storm was a little different than the last. And you've got not only tornadoes, but nor'easters, snow, ice, everything. So yes, you you know us well, right? You know, um, yeah, we've got the whole uh, gamut and hurricanes. You forgot about hurricanes. Each time there's a storm, we consider it a DRBCP exercise. So we always do learnings during the event itself, and then we always debrief afterwards. And we actually keep a log on our incident response about, hey, you know, what, what happened? What did we learn? And, and we do a lot of mitigation as a result of that. For example, several years ago, all of the cell towers became inoperable during a major storm. And so 
what we learned is, oh, but you could actually, there was still texting that was, you know, doable. So that was a mitigating thing. At one point, years and years ago, we tried satellite phones and we discovered that in the Northeast, that's not really a great solution. So we believe in try, fail, learn, iterate, try, fail, learn, iterate. Each storm brings many different things, whether it's black ice, you know, sub-zero temperatures or high winds with leaves on trees and power lines. And we make very incident-specific decisions so that, and one of the things that we do, as you can imagine, we sound like a very collaborative organization and we are. So we actually have an email group and a way for our employees across our footprint called Weather Update, where they can actually let us know exactly what's going on in that. Because as you can imagine, we have microclimates here. It could be absolutely fine on Nantucket and we could have 10 inches of snow here on the on, on the Cape or the mainland could get the jackpot and the Cape is fine and it's sunny and we don't know why anybody's concerned. So <laughs> that kind of engagement in DRBCP is very important. Well, again, I, I thank you because again, what we're seeing is with, I would say I call it extreme climate changes or, or risks that are hitting different parts of the country. Many times people think, oh, well, this was just a hundred year flood. And now mm. we're seeing them repeat. But what I keep talking about is what did you learn from the last one? Because we're never as fully prepared as we think we are. And inevitably something does break down, but to go back and, and retrace the steps, figure out what went wrong and what you could do to prevent that going forward. Uh, my hat's off to you. So one last question is, what advice would you have for other financial institutions when they're looking to address climate risk or mitigate climate risk? And the floor is yours for however how long you want to continue. Oh, my goodness. You just pushed a button and now you'll have to stop me. Um, <laughs> you know, now I want to go back to what you said, which is start incrementally, right? Don't think that you have to take this on. And also, don't be so persuaded by what some might call greenwashing, which is, well, I just want to like write a check and have this go away or whatever. Really be thoughtful about engaging your entire organization in this. So there's so many ways that you can accrue the benefits from the perspective of achieving a, a positive impact, as well as saving your customers and your employees money, things like that. So begin by doing an internal analysis of what's important in your area. So for example, Raphael, as you know, from knowing the Northeast, our needs are very, very different than my friends in Mississippi. And, um, you know, my friends all over the country in Colorado and in California and in Texas. And so it, the first thing to do is understand the specifics of your own situation and reach out reach out to organizations in your community that have done analyses of how it is that you can make an impact. That's nonprofit organizations, quasi-governmental organizations, planning groups, municipalities, and states. We rely a great deal on the research that's being done by the state in its uh, 2050 roadmap and all of the subsequent legislation and regulation. Our the commissions, the planning commissions in our region 
in each of the specific regions, have outlined steps that can be taken and what the pressing needs are. And then the municipalities have actually undertaken to identify that. So engage in collaborating with the stakeholders and learning from them. And then begin at the beginning. I have a retired employee who is just so wonderful. And he said, the best words he ever said to me were best for today. So in other words, you can't get it all done and you have to be reasonable. So start small and it will build and engage your employees and engage your customers and engage your board and you will make an impact and measure it. And as it grows each year, it's a self-fulfilling, which is you'll feel so positive about it that you'll want to do more. Great. Well, I, I think, again, these are all really good examples. And and I might be touching on a, a kind of political wire as I talk about this, but I've heard some investors talking about, you know, investing in environmental is really a cost and we would rather invest, you know, in more loans and in, in helping the community. But from my vantage point, what you've talked about, you've invested in your community is what you've done. And you've invested for the long term, not just for the short term. Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. And when you think of the green economy, in our region, there's wind farm turbines going up that are going to provide tremendous opportunities. Electrification of heat sources is going to provide many, many jobs for the trades. The solar installation is an enormous burgeoning thing. And frankly, if we we're characterized as having the best solar loan around, so that gets us customers that uh, residential customers, commercial customers, then the vendors like us. So when you're doing it, you're actually, it's doing well by doing good. Good. Well, Dorothy, thank you for your time today. And thank you for being my guest. And as we've talked about, I see a potential for several other shows down the road, if you'd be so willing. I'd be happy to, Raphael. Well, thank you and have a great day. All right. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of The InCast, talking with thought leaders about key issues in the financial industry. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.